Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing. That's right, Keep Breathing, broadcasting from Huntington Beach, California, and from New York City, coast to coast to big LA. Welcome to all my listeners out there in Radio Land. I am Dave Nastani, the Caregiver's Caregiver Radio Show, coming to you live from the syndicated all-positive talk radio network, HealthyLife.net, broadcasting in all 50 states and 135 countries with my lovely co-host, Adrian Gruberg from thecaregiverspace.org. Hello. Hello, Adrian. And just a reminder that all our shows are available on demand at healthylife.net and at our membership website, caregiverdave.com. Incidentally, it was voted number two best podcast of the top six caregiver podcasts by caring.com. And if you go right now to caregiverdave.com, our free burnout quiz, as well as my first book about overcoming unbelievable hardships, and an audio recording that will help you to go to sleep and stay asleep, and it's all free for the asking. So do that now while you're listening to our show, caregiverdave.com. And we do have an exciting show planned for you today, don't we, Adrian? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We, we have do. caregiver. We do, we do, we do. <laughs> we have caregiver and author Victoria Price. This is the daughter of the great Vincent Price. Our topic today is living love, the heart-centered practice of self-care. And Victoria Price brings her unique story to the national and international stage as an author, inspirational speaker, blogger, consultant, coach, and inspirational minister. Her daddy wow. would really be proud of her. Following in her father's footsteps, Victoria has become a popular speaker on a wide range of inspirational topics, as well as the life of her famous father, Vincent Price. And along with writing her popular blog, Daily Practice of Joy, Victoria is the author of three books, the Way of Being Lost, A Road Trip to My Truest Self, the critically acclaimed Vincent Price, a daughter's biography, and her latest book, Living Love, 12 Heart-Centered Practices to Transform Your Life. In 2018, after living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, for a quarter century, Victoria began a nomadic life. So she's a, she's a nomad, she told us that. Four years later, she remains intentionally home-free. That's kind of like homeless, but you still have a home, I guess. And still is on the road with her dog, Allie, who is really, really cute, by the way. So first, I want to take this opportunity to thank our last guest, Anne-Marie Hancock, author of You Can't Drive Your Car to the to Your Own Funeral. And you can watch or listen to that interview on all our and all our interviews on HealthyLife.net or on our membership website, CaregiverDave.com. All right, enough of that. Victoria, welcome to the show, and I'm so excited to have you on. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, I'd like to ask my guests to take a minute or two and just tell us who is Victoria Price and why was she put on this earth? Well, I think that's the question we all ask ourselves. Why were we put oh. here? I was listening <laughs> to uh, a writer and physicist, Brian Greene, yesterday, and he said something really interesting that he realized as a sophomore in college that Human beings are the only uh, species who are aware of our mortality, and that's why we're so obsessed with 
our immortality, trying to leave our stamp on the earth. And mm. so it's funny you should ask that because uh, as I was thinking about this interview, I thought, what about giving this interview, not really thinking about who I am, but rather what needs to come through me today for someone who might need to hear something. So I guess I'm here tonight, hopefully to be a conduit or a transparency for love, which is really what we all need. Oh, yes. Pet Clark was right about that. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. Victoria, you have a book coming out called Living Love. What does that mean and what relevance does that have to being a caregiver? Because you are a caregiver. Well, we're all hopefully caregivers, that's right. right? Hopefully that's something right now in particular we're all trying to do for one another is actually show up and, and care for one another and for the plant and the animals. But living love is really about shifting out of a problem mindset, about thinking that life is a series of problems to be solved. Because when we see life as a series of problems to be solved, whether it's caring for someone else or showing up and uh, trying to be there for anyone else or ourselves or our own life, then we're coming from a place of fear. We're saying, I've got a problem and I'm afraid I can't fix it. We're on the other side of the problem. So what I recognized was that if we practice love, which sounds silly, but if we show up and create heart-centered practices, then for 20 minutes a day, at least, we actually are showing up as we really know we are inside, which is an expression of love. And what that has to do with caregiving, frankly, is that if we are showing up in constriction, in fear, in anxiety, and in, in doubt, we can't give anything. The only way we really can give is if that we really understand that whatever we need to give has to come through us, not from us. I think that there is a greater, higher power, which I believe is the power of love, the power of good, and that power comes through us if we clean our windows and aren't just focused on fear. Wow, well said. Um, so remind me, how long has your father been gone? Uh, 20, I think, seven years, something like that. Oh, my, yeah. how time is flying. Is flying, is that a word? Has flown. <laughs> well, you talk about heart-centered practices in your book. Um, what is a heart-centered practice? So... A heart-centered practice is anything that shifts us out of our heads. Our heads are the source of this belief that life is a series of problems that we're here to solve. And our head is hardwired, not from birth, but through education, through messages from the media, through our family, our friends, our educators, to see a problem and fix it. That's our entire educational system is based on that. So a heart-centered practice aims to bypass all that and actually get us down into our hearts. And the reason I found out about that was because I needed to shift my life. I understood that the way I was living as a workaholic, as somebody who was a perfectionist trying to do everything right and miserable doing that, that if I kept doing that, I wouldn't make it. And so what came to me was that joy was the way that I got into my heart and was able to connect with others. And joy was my conduit to love and healing and hope. But how would I do that if I was so busy being a workaholic and trying to solve problems? And so what I realized was I had to create a daily practice of joy. And I had to figure out what brought me joy. And joy 
comes for me from very simple things, being with my dog, going on a walk, literally smelling the roses, uh, the sound of birds, just very simple things. And so for 20 minutes a day, in a conscious, committed, and deliberate way, I practice joy. If that meant jumping in a puddle, if that meant smelling mm-hmm. a rose, I practice that. And what I didn't realize would happen, although it came through to me loud and clear that this was what I had to do, I had no idea what the result would be. The result was that I bypassed that head that was yammering on at me, and all of a sudden, for 20 minutes a day, I was this pure conduit of love and joy. And I felt like anything was possible. And so I began to blog about it. I began to grow that practice. And what I realized was if I didn't practice that and other heart-based practices like gratitude, like surrender, like centering, if I didn't do that, then what was going to happen was I was going to go back into the fear-based head mode. And uh, so a heart-centered practice gets us out of our heads and into our heart, which aligns us with love. Mm. You know, how much of this did you inherit from your father? I mean, you talk about perfectionism and workaholism and, uh, you know, caregivers are all perfectionists, I think, (laughs) which I guess might make them workaholics as well, but not necessarily. But uh, how are you and him similar and dissimilar? Well, the interesting thing was when you grow up the kid of a celebrity in a celebrity-based culture, and we always have been a celebrity-based culture because it's sort of the ultimate expression of the quote-unquote equality of democracy, that anyone can become successful, anyone can succeed. But basically, celebrity culture has grown into a frenzy. And so when I was a kid, you know, there was this real sense everywhere I went, oh, you're Vincent Price's daughter, oh, you're Vincent Price's daughter. I'm almost 58 years old. You still introduced me as Vincent Price's daughter, and he's been dead a long time. Um, And so it comes with you. And as a kid, you both resist that, and you're, if you loved the person you're related to, you're drawn to it. Furthermore, it opens doors for you. So there's this little titillation around celebrity. And the thing for me was that it was a really mixed bag. I wanted to be my own person, but I adored my dad because he was just pure love and joy. And it wasn't until his 100th birthday was celebrated all over the world that I was asked to go out and sort of stand in my dad's footsteps and kind of be to the fans what they would never get to experience because he was no longer alive. I would get to be this sort of conduit for how it felt to be around him. And what happened was I felt that joy and I felt that love. And that was the first bypass to this whole workaholism crap. Mm. And so (laughs) what happened then was I realized that my legacy, my legacy from my dad wasn't being the kid of a celebrity. It wasn't being Vincent Price's daughter. It was love. It was unconditional love. My dad is the reason I know what unconditional love feels like. Yes, he was a workaholic. Yes, he was a perfectionist. Uh, Yes, he was very famous and had a 65-year career, but his true legacy to me was love. And what's interesting is both my mother and my stepmother were also very successful and well-known. And my stepmother in England was very famous during her lifetime. But she is not remembered in the same way as my dad was. And the reason is that she did not leave behind a legacy of love. And he Mm. did. So that really taught me that the only legacy, only legacy that any of us can really leave behind all this immortality crap is the legacy of love. And it lives on 
however it lives on. You know, if we learn to make meatballs from our grandmother or we remember Mm -hmm. changing the car oil with our dad or going fishing, that Mm -hmm. love that came through that action, we pass on and that's what lives on. And that's what's really important right now, frankly. If we're not living love, we're not going to be able to turn this planet around. And right now we're all looking at why the planet is like this because we've all forgotten how to live love. And that's why, you know, this book feels so timely to me. Yeah, well, I'm so impressed that your childhood sounds so wonderful because that's not the case for so many children of stars, especially ones that, you know, are married multiple times. Um, How normal was your childhood? And and, uh, I assume your parents got divorced or? Well, you know, I'm sure everybody grew up in a 9,000 square foot house with a sandbox (laughs) that was the size of an Olympic sized swimming pool surrounded by two columns with a. 25 foot uh, Native American totem pole in their backyard. So yeah, (laughs) totally normal, really just the norm, absolutely. Um, No, I had a very unusual childhood. My parents were gone all the time. I had a map over my bed and my dad would send me handwritten postcards. And when they came, I'd move his little colored flag around and my mother's colored flag around. they were absent. They, I had incredible caregivers, but some of them were very strict, and that was challenging. My mother was English, very, very, very strict. But what she gave me were two things, a metaphysical um, foundation, a metaphysical spiritual foundation, and the other thing that she gave me was discipline. And those two things, and my dad's massive love, and my mother's desire to give me everything that would enable me to not be what she thought would be the a fate worse than death becoming a beverly hills brat those things were what saved my life i would have to say wow that's so cool any uh questions you have adrian not yet not yet not yet (laughs) (laughs) did i be nervous no not at all why why this may sound like a dumb question but it's an important question that caregivers don't even think about why do we not need to practice self-care? I mean, a lot of these caregivers think that their care, that their care receiver's life or their loved one is so much more important than their piddly little life. And that, you know, it's a privilege to take care of them. And if uh, it was between them uh, and the other person, as far as a need goes, well, no, I would give you the shirt off my back. Is that a healthy or heroic attitude or is that uh, not correct? One of the things that I love studying to be an interfaith, interspiritual minister uh, is learning about different traditions. And Hinduism is a beautiful tradition because it explains that there are many different paths through which we access uh, the divine, the holy within us. And one of the Hindu paths is the path of service. And the, the tricky thing about any path, you know, it's easier to see maybe like the path of the mind, the intellect, because mm-hmm. we all know that the mind can turn into this false reliance on our head. And I just explained where that leads. But service, what we don't understand, because we think service inherently in and of itself is this really beautiful gift that we're giving. What, what we become blind to in any any path is where ego comes in. And where ego comes in is when we lose sight of what we're getting out of it. And what's very tricky about it is we don't 
necessarily know that we have built our lives around giving so we feel better about ourselves. And so the act of self-care is a really interesting thing because it actually short circuits that. It allows us to understand that what drew us, obviously, the Hindus say we're drawn in our hearts to whatever our inherent path is. And people who are drawn to service, they're naturally givers. It comes from a holistic place. But whenever our heads get involved, and that comes from our education and our parents, find out what you're good at, go out there and be good at it. So then we become good at being this caregiver and giving back to someone. And our identity becomes wrapped up in giving. And so we don't understand that we've lost ourself. And if we're not giving from a place of wholeness, if, if the well is dry, there ain't going to be any water. And so we have to actually, what self-care does is it forces us to look at where we're not paying attention to ourselves. And I think we're having a massive metaphor for that right now as a society. All our toys have been taken away and we all have to look at what's really underneath if we can't go out and distract ourselves. So the self-care is, you know, maybe on a good day, it might look like going to a spa and getting a massage, but really more fundamentally, self-care is getting quiet and really going back into the well and going, what do I need to refill the well so that the giving doesn't come from the word should, uh, which is what eventually happens to us. And should, I think, is misspelled. It's a four-letter word that just somehow ended up being six. <laughs> you know, we're, we're shooting all over ourselves all the time, and there's nothing we can give if we're shooting all over ourselves. When we refill the well, we get back to why we wanted to serve and give in the first place, which was from a place of love. And that's what heart-centered practice does. It, it, I said, it sort of realigns us back into our heart, and from there we have something to give. That, to me, is, is self-care. And what, what about the people who can't get there because uh, the words selfish and guilt get in the way? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> uh, guilt is one of those, wow, really challenging words. And, you know, as somebody who is an inner spiritual minister and I've gone through five years of different seminary programs and I speak with my friends all the time and it's a real challenge. People are like, you know, it feels selfish to ask for money. It's like, well, to, does the grocery store feel selfish asking for money? Because how are you going to pay your bills? You know, well, yeah, but I, you know, I feel selfish asking for money if somebody's asking for the support. I think what we've really lost, and again, this time is really showing us, is that life is a circle. And anything that is an exchange is an exchange of value. We have something that we can give that another person needs. Somebody that we are giving care to, that we're caregiving for, needs our care. And so if we don't have anything left to give, they're not getting care anymore. And on some level, they feel that and they know that. And so, yes, of course, you know, the head, the head is a tricksy little rabbit, you know, and it's always going to turn what we need into this language of, oh, you know, you can't do that. I mean, I'm a workaholic. I know it. I get up and I say, I'm going to take the evening off. And it's 1030 before I disrupt that computer yeah. off because of guilt <laughs> and selfishness and all of those things. Ah, I got to do that. I, I'm getting paid. I, I've got to do this for this person. And then there's nothing left to give. And I sit down one day and there's 
nothing left. So it is the least thing you should feel guilty about. It's the least selfish thing. You know, there's a beautiful distinction between our false selves and our true selves. Our false selves live in our heads. They're that voice that's nattering on at you all the time. The voice that uses should. It's the voice that says guilty and selfish. And then there's this voice that we've forgotten how to listen to, but it's speaking to us all the time. It's that still small voice that actually is the place that the desire to serve and the desire to care comes from. And so actually what you're doing when you care for yourself is you're reconnecting with that still small voice, which is the voice of love from which care can be given. Wow, well said. Melissa, we're gonna take a break. So we will be right back. We're talking with Victoria Price, Adrian Gruberg, I'm Dave Massani, so don't go away. One Arm, One Leg, 100 Words, Overcoming Unbelievable Hardships is about Charlene, a stroke survivor. Back in 1996, Charlene was a healthy, normal, very active 52-year-old woman whose amazing talents resemble that of both a Martha Stewart and a Wonder Woman. But all that changed when she suffered a massive stroke that left her severely speech-impaired and paralyzed on the right side. Who am I? My name is David. I've had the privilege of being Charlene's husband since 1975. We had a wonderful fairy tale, storybook like courtship that culminated in our marriage a year later. Charlene had just come out of a marriage where, after 10 years, she received two black eyes and a broken nose by her former husband when he came home high on speed. Charlene believed in no second chances of any kind for abuse, so she left. Finding herself all alone in the world with her five and ten-year-old daughters, Cynthia Lorraine and Deborah Lynn, she started raising them by herself for the next two years. Then fate brought us all together. After falling in love with Charlene, Cindy, and Debbie, our love then produced Rebecca Elizabeth. We had a wonderful, normal life for the next 20 years. But today, things are very different for everyone. How about the reaction of nine-time Grammy and Dev Award recipient godfather of contemporary gospel Christian music, Andre Crouch. Charlene just won't let the promises of God go, and she has not let her circumstances get in the way of her faith. She's not just a survivor, she's more than a conqueror, as the Bible states. You'll be encouraged by her testimony, regardless of what you're going through. Available everywhere. Welcome back. We're on the Caregiver Dave Show with Victoria Price, Adrian Gruberg. I'm Dave Nassani at caregiverdave.com. And uh, we're having a wonderful conversation with Victoria. I, she's a caregiver, and she's the daughter of Vincent Price, even though she doesn't like for me to say that uh, very often. I didn't but, say that. Uh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's who you are, you know, and it is uh, part of your identity. And you are who you are because you were the daughter of Vincent Price. And it sounds like it was a great childhood, even though it was an unusual childhood. Mm -hmm. So my question is, what did you learn while you were taking care of your father during his illness? And before you answer that, tell us uh, how old he was and what his illness was. And basically, how was his health? And was he good most of his life? And then just all of a sudden, or was it a very slow progression? He was good most of his life, pretty much his entire life. Then there were a couple of things that happened toward the end of his life. But really, 
it was about, uh, there was a sort of a, a gradual decline, but he was able to still work. And then it was really the last two years of his life where he was unable to work, maybe two and a half years of his life. And he was somebody whose identity was derived from working. Mm -hmm. And then he became very thin and very frail. And mm -hmm. um, he had watched uh, his wife, my stepmother, die. And he didn't want to have the same thing happen to her. And so he had mm -hmm. brought somebody in who was a caregiver uh, who who had been a, actually a really interesting man, a, a wonderful man, English guy who had been Ava Gardner's personal secretary and uh, worked in as an executive in the recording industry. And he came in to be my dad and stepmother's personal secretary, but uh, he ended up becoming their caregiver who lived on the premises. But wow. he recognized, it was my dad who recognized that Reg um, would burn out if he was there constantly. And Reg was one of those people who wouldn't have taken the time off. So my yeah. dad absolutely refused to let Reg work uh, more than I think it was one night a week. And he made sure that he had one or two weekend days off. And so then it fell to me to sort of organize everybody. But he said, you know, you're 30 years old. You're not going to be here every night that Reg isn't here. So would you try to organize some friends? And so my wonderful friend, Dennis, uh, who I just knew my dad would get along really, really well with, helped me, and we tag-teamed. And Dennis was nice. a young actor and a really interesting guy, and that kept my dad alive. Dennis mm. eventually moved away with my dad's blessing. He sort of encouraged Dennis to go do some things he needed to do sure. to care for himself. Dennis mm. knew there were some things going on in his life that he needed to change, and he couldn't change them in Los Angeles. And so then I put together another group of friends, um, and uh, Roddy McDowell, who was a dear friend of my dad's, called them the yeah. Angels. And, uh, and all of us tag team. And there was this wonderful exchange because my dad was this incredible cook. So he taught us all how to cook really well and what he liked to eat. Um, he would sit and watch movies. He would share. He was an amazing storyteller, share his stories. And it became this beautiful circle of care, and we all really loved it. And one of my favorite pictures, I have this fantastic picture of my dad's last birthday, and it's all of us, Reg and all of us angels. And we are laughing all so hard that we're almost crying laughing <laughs> so hard. And, you know, here we are around somebody that we know is frail and, and is going, and he did die later that year, but there was so much joy in this circle mm -hmm. of care. And that was my dad understanding you can't ask one person to do everything. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, is Roddy still alive? No, he's not. No. He passed away in the 90s. Wow. You know you get old when you don't know who's alive and who's dead anymore. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's an amazing That's what story. the Oscars remembrance thing is for. <laughs> <laughs> to, to remind us. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So that your father was very astute in knowing that, uh, you know, that, that others can burn out. You know, it, it shows that he wasn't selfish or caught up in his disease like many, many are. You know, uh, I tell caregivers all the time because um, some of the loved ones are very demanding and very selfish and and it's just a character um, reversal of how they were before their alzheimer's or before their stroke or whatever and 
and I tell them that they need to, you know, have boundaries, healthy boundaries. And even though the role reversal, now they're acting like the parent and the parent is acting like a child, you know, if they don't um, kind of get out of their head uh, that this is my mother, you know, I owe her so much, she gave me life, and uh, you've, you've got to place boundaries or it will kill you, you know. Like the oxygen uh, analogy, if you don't put your mask on first, you're both going down. So uh, what would what advice would you give to caregivers, you know, during these um, unprecedented times, especially with the coronavirus? I'm doing my own uh, segment on the coronavirus and caregiving, and, and uh, people are just uh, uh, eating it up because anything that has the name coronavirus on it is like, uh, you want to hear about it. So let me hear yours. <laughs> well... I think, again, the, the thing about caregiving is I'm going to give a weird piece of advice, but um, and it came from a funny place. It came from a theater professor many years ago um, who taught me the importance of listening. Mm. And I think with anything that we quote unquote do, there's this idea that we're in it to do it. And what we often forget when we're doing is that the most important thing really sometimes we can do for people is to listen to them. So first of all, I think being somebody who can hold what is being given to us without taking it in and letting it sort of churn up inside of us to listen, to hear, to hold what somebody needs to share um, without taking it personally or feeling like we have to solve it or feeling like it's ours to fix, that's really important. But conversely, we also then have to learn to listen to something, again, it's that still small voice of the true self that overrides the voice in our head, that's the voice of the should, the voice of the, the you know, I need to do this, I have to do this, this person did this for me, how can I not do that for them? And it's that, you know, we do know when we have boundaries. It's just that they make us uncomfortable a lot of times. Uh, and I learned something great. I taught kids for a long time. And the first time I came in and taught kids, I thought, oh, I can't wait. I'm going to be, I taught college before I taught younger kids. And I thought, I'm going to be that cool teacher and all the kids are going to love me. <laughs> the first day I realized that they were looking at me like, this is too much. And in one day, I realized that the cool teacher was the teacher who could be their cool self, but also hold boundaries that made them feel safe. That same thing that we learn from kids is applicable to people that we're caregiving for. That there is a sense that other people have that if we are not operating with a clear sense of boundaries and listening to ourselves, then kind of everything's going to hell in a handbasket. And so I think one of the best things we can do is learn to listen and hold without taking it personally, but also learn to listen to ourselves and bring those boundaries into caregiving. Yeah, very well said. Listen, we're gonna take another break. We will be right back. Do not go away. Anytime we suffer loss, we grieve. And a lot of people don't realize what even the grief process is. But it could be five to seven steps ranging from denial, 
I don't believe this is happening. Anger, oh my gosh, I'm so upset this is happening. To a form of bargaining, how can I get out of this? To depression, which is a very serious thing because that often leads to suicide. And then finally, finally, after you realize you have no more control over your situation and you're totally okay with the new normal that it brings, that wonderful, wonderful place called acceptance. And we're back with Victoria Price, Adrian Gruberg, and I'm David Sani. And we're talking about caregiving. We're talking about boundaries. We're talking about workaholism. We're talking about uh, all sorts of stuff that caregivers go through. Now the coronavirus, as if they didn't have enough on their plate. Um, Victoria, tell me, what, what is your favorite um, heart-centered practice since you, I don't know, did you devise this term or you borrowed it from somebody? It's just what came through me. You know, I never think I write anything. I just sort of snap <laughs> hands on the Recycle keys and what has to come through, comes through. But, you know, as, as I was listening to you say about uh, coronavirus and, and I was listening to what you said about the fav my favorite heart center practice, it ties in with my dad as well. My dad did this uh, <laughs> recording that everybody loves. It's sort of scary stories and things like that. And it was called <laughs> The Price of Fear. Yeah, he's, he's good at that. <laughs> he, he yes. And it really caused me to think a lot about what is the price that all of us pay for fear? I don't think any of us recognize the degree to which we are constantly manipulated. And I'm not suggesting some, you know, big brother is up there pulling the strings, but all of the fear that's spewed out at us is completely messing with us. And so one other thing I would say to somebody who is caregiving during the coronavirus is it's natural that everybody around you is feeling this ramped up fear. And the fear comes from what psychologists call the one fear to rule them all, which is the fear of the unknown. Because of course, all fear is fear of the unknown, but the, the meta fear of all of that is the fear of the unknown. And here in this unprecedented time with all this lack of information and people changing their minds one day and then the next day and then the next day and the next day there's all this fear and so my favorite heart center practice is one that actually clears the fear uh, but it also is something that is really important for caregivers to be able to say to people they're caring for and help them with but also to clear for themselves and it's about actually recognizing that we've been taught from the time we were little, I'm, I'm gonna go back. When we were very young, we were encouraged not to know because how could we know anything? And opening yourself to what you don't know allowed you to learn. But there gets to be a point when you get to be sort of between 18 and 22 or maybe 16 and 22, where if you keep saying, I don't know, the grown-ups in your life say to you, what do you mean you don't know? How are you going to pay the car bill? You know, how, how can you not know that? And all of a sudden, from, from being encouraged to be open to not knowing, we start to feel stupid or judged for not knowing. And we begin to create this whole persona around what we know, which still doesn't compensate for the fact that there's so much that we don't know. And what we lose is our 
fundamental knowledge that what we don't know is actually going to lead us to where we need to go. And here's here's the flip side of the unknown, scary unknown of the coronavirus is what we also don't know is what is going to come out of this that is right. going to take us into healing. We don't know what that is, but we're all thinking it's all bad that we don't know, but there's a lot that we don't know that is the good. And so this practice is about actually welcoming the I don't know. It's inviting your I don't know to tell you what you need to know. And so it's basically creating a practice where you actually recognize that if you invite what you don't know into your life and stop being scared of it, all this fear actually sort of dissipates back into its native nothingness. And again, that still small voice, you realize that there is something in you that knows. And it's a its a knowing that is beyond words. And that is the knowing from which we can care for others. And that's also the knowing that's going to save the planet. Yeah, I was going to say, we don't know what we don't know. Right. And, uh, <laughs> um, you've been posting a lot about uh, love. You're all about love. And so you created a hashtag, love viral. What is that? Well, I think there's this sort of hallmark card idea about love, right? And love is something we do with one another. But I fundamentally believe, I believe that love is the power the power. Love is the higher power. Love is what we were born from, what we are here to do. You asked me earlier what I'm here to do. I'm here to love. And the funny thing is, I'm not one of those mushy, huggy, lovey people. You know, if if I were Hindu, my path would be the head path. That's what's, <laughs> that's what I was drawn to. But the bottom line is we get to a certain place in our lives and we realize that all that really matters is love. But more than even that, that higher love actually has the power to heal. Medical studies prove it. Psychologists prove it. It has a transformational power. And so I think that we have to, we're obligated to begin to create language that combats this fear that is being thrown out around this virus and the state of the world, because fear just begets more fear. And so Love Viral is actually creating very simple practices that people can do every day, like every hour on the hour, saying thank you, giving thanks to someone or something, looking at everybody you see as you pass them on the street or they're walking by your window and seeing them through the eyes of love, uh, looking up at the sky and being filled with the love for the the clouds or the sound of the birds. It's little simple things that actually reprogram us into shifting out of fear and back in alignment with a higher power that I believe is the fundamental power for healing. Wow. And we're going to take another break. Got to pay the bills. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Dave Nassani, the caregiver's caregiver, has just released his sixth book entitled It's My Life Too, Thrive to Stay Alive as a Caregiver. It was specifically written for caregivers who know they should be putting their needs first, but just don't know how. Dave is the sole caregiver to his wife, Charlene, since 1996. He knows firsthand what caregivers are going through because he is one. He now speaks all across the country 
offering caregivers his amazing caregiver support package. Even the airlines tell us that in the event of an emergency, to put your oxygen mask on first before you help your child with their mask. They know that those who don't heed their advice often black out, thus becoming unable to help either themselves or their child. And caregivers are exactly the same way. It's my life to thrive and stay alive as a caregiver will help caregivers who are neglecting their sleep, diet, and social life and learn to put their needs first. Pick up your copy today or buy one for your special caregiver on sale everywhere and at caregiverdave.com. And we're back on our final segment with Victoria Price and Adrian Gruberg. I'm Dave Nassani on the Caregiver Dave Show here on the HealthyLife.net network, all positive talk radio. And you, you talk, you know, I wanted to mention this first because we know that stress kills. Stress is a killer, the doctors tell us. And, and we know that 30% of caregivers are dying because of the stress. And, and uh, 41% of caregivers are burned out, which they now have a compromised immune system, which makes them more uh, at risk for coronavirus or the flu or anything, you know. But uh, by the inverse side, if stress kills, does love heal? What do you, what can you say about that, about the healing properties of love or stress well, or other tangible things, you know, that have an effect on the body, good and bad? It's, it sounds when we're in the midst of something that is completely mesmerizing us, like the stress of caring for somebody that we love who is suffering or a world that is just completely in fear around something that is unknown. It sounds pie in the sky, pink paint, unicorns, fairy dust to talk about love. So I like to use this example of, well, I'll take my, my dad's life here. So we all go into a movie to see, willingly, to see a scary movie starring Vincent Price, right? And we're in this movie and all of a sudden, we're just completely just drawn into this movie, so much so that our heart is racing and right. we're <laughs> terrified and we're gripping the person next to us. I, for example, am not the person you want to go to a scary movie with because you will be black and blue at the end of that. And we're sitting there and we're freaked out and there's a part of us going, why am I putting myself through this? <laughs> the other part of us is like, but I'm here and I've chosen to be here and it's scary and it's kind of good scary and I came with these people and well, the popcorn's good and I bought the supersized Coke so I got to finish that. And we're in there with all of this and all of a sudden there's this little voice going, you know, if you really are that scared, you can get up and go outside to the movie theater. But the more we stay in the movie theater, the more we stop hearing that voice. And what I don't think any of us realize is that if we get up and we walk out of the movie theater, what happens is we see that there's a sun and sky and there's people who aren't terrified. And that is my metaphor for love. There is a greater power that exists all around us. Gandhi said that the simple little acts of good every day will outweigh even the most egregious evil. So no matter how much is being spewed about the coronavirus, there is this power that is still causing the trees to bloom and all of us to show up in kindness to one another. And that power 
has the power if we align more with it to shift everything. And that's what we forget. And when we shift out of fear, extraordinary things happen. But we have to choose to do that and understand that it is putting the oxygen mask on, that it is exactly what we need to do. And it's not abandoning someone, you know, walking out of the movie theater isn't abandoning your friends to be eaten by the monster. And, <laughs> and so it's really important that we actually learn how to do this and encourage others to do it. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell a story uh, quickly about my sister-in-law who um, had throat cancer in the 70s. And I, I believe she had it three different times. I, I may be wrong on that. And at some point she realized that the medical route was not the route that was working for her. She was just feeling bludgeoned by it and, and it wasn't the right thing for her. And she began reading about all these alternate therapies, watching movies and laughing, eating a holistic diet, eating this and taking that out. And she went into the doctor and she said, you know what? I think I just really need to change this up. I want to try what I want to try. And the doctor said, wow, when you said you were coming in, you know, I was kind of anxious because what I was going to say to you is I can't do anything more for you. Well, my stepmother, my sister-in-law uh, lived for another 40 something years, maybe 50 and uh, and she wow. did do laugh therapy and eat holistic. She learned to play the piano. She, you know, she did things that brought her back into alignment with her truest self, and it had a profound healing power. And so I think we've all forgotten, you know, from people who believe it, believe that love is another name for God, to people who understand that what we feel in our purest hearts is love. There's, there's all sorts of manifestations and understanding of what love is. But love, when we show up to it as human beings, has a, the fundamental poten potential and to completely rewrite the script of what's going on in our world. Yeah, children um, certainly understand it. Totally. Totally. Uh, I'm going to say one more story about contagion. I, I heard this story uh, when I was a kid, and I've thought of it a, a lot. Uh, this little girl went over to a friend's house to play, and she knocked on the door, and the mother came to the door, and she said, you know, Sally can't come out to play with you today. She's, you know, she's got a cold or the flu or something, and, you know, she doesn't want you to catch it. And the little girl looked up at Sally's mother and said, well, couldn't Sally catch being well from me? <laughs> you know what we believe is you know the movie that we're screening and you know mm -hmm. i think we can catch being well from one another yeah and what are you going to say adrian i was going to ask um from the from what you said what we don't know will lead us to where we should be um what we what we don't know is something that we have no power over. We can't change it. How, and control freaks are all about wanting to change things. And sure. this is a situation that we can't change. We can um, we can feel a certain way about it. We can live a certain way, but this is just happening to us. So where does love fit into that? Well, I think for me, my understanding of love is that, you know, love is the sun and 
we're the planets rotating around it. And so to me, love is, is the ultimate power. It's another name for, I suppose, spirit or life or mind mm-hmm. or soul. Um, and to me, I believe that there is a higher power than our little heads telling us what we do and we don't know. Um, and so, you know, the 12 step movement uh, is the fastest growing spiritual platform sure. in the world, right? And one of the for premises of it is right for a reason, because it's very freeing in what it allows you to, how it allows you to approach your own healing. But one of it, its main tenets is acknowledging that you're powerless over certain mm-hmm. things. And, you know, there's a lot of people who have a lot of difficulty with that. Well, you know, I, how can that be? And I'm not powerless and I want to be, well, you know, probably right. powerless and we don't want to be, do we have control when we do want to be? And so I think the real thing to understand is the beauty of this idea of something humanly we might call mystery, right? We've lost that. But if you look at mythology, if you look at the history of the saints or the mystics, there's all these incredible things that happen that happen because somebody opened themselves up to the possibility of mystery. And again, kids are a wonderful example. Kids read fantasy books and they think, of course, that's possible. That's but real. we get to be adults and we think that's not possible. And so I guess what I'm saying is anything is possible especially with this, somebody could wake up tomorrow morning and discover that drinking three glasses of orange juice, a friend of mine said this, is going to be the, you know, the solution to everything. I'm being facetious, but my point is we literally don't know. And so as control freaks, where's that gotten us? Not very far. And so we have to be able to relinquish this idea that our control is going to make it better and recognize that, you know, the sun's in charge. The sun is going to, you know, it's not coming up. We're circling around it. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't believe how fast this hour has gone. Uh, we've completely run out of time. Um, in about 20 seconds, tell us how we can get a hold of you or contact you or buy your book or get questions answered. Sure. I'm on, you know, the social media stuff as I'm Victoria Price. I am Victoria Price. Mm-hmm. I have a website, which is victoriaprice.com and another one, which is dailypracticeofjoy.com. I blog every day on daily practice of joy about joy mm-hmm. and love. And uh, I post every day and my book is called Living Love, 12 Heart-Centered Practices to Transform Your Life. It comes out April 14th and it's available through all the usual places, but I'm going to push uh, two places, indie bookstores, buy from your indie bookstores, please support yes. indie bookstores right <laughs> now. And also uh, bookshop, uh, I think it's called bookshops.org, which is a new indie uh, resource for buying books. Oh, that's wow, you mean great. A place other than Barnes and Noble, huh? <laughs> or, or Amazon. Uh, so buy from your indie bookseller. Thank you. Deliver. I like that. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show and promoting uh, small business. And Adrian Gruberg, she's at uh, thecaregiverspace.org, and you can catch her at Adrian at thecaregiverspace.org. I'm caregiverdave.com, and we have three free gifts for you there. And thank you so much for tuning in every time, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing. 